Good morning. Thanks for having me. I'm going to adjust this mic now so it's not making noise the whole time. Is that better? A little bit? All right. Um, so as Travis said, uh, my husband Eric and I and my kids have been at Bethany for uh, almost three years now. And when we first got to know Travis, one of the things that we figured out, are we still getting a lot of feedback on this? Move it down. Is that better? I can do handheld if we need to. Good? Okay, thank you. So when we met Travis, uh, one of the things that we figured out, as he already said, was that he and I went to Fuller. So I was going to like cheer, go Fullerites or something like that, but they don't have a sports team, so there's no mascot. <laughs> so yay, Fuller. It's a good school. Um, but one of the great things about seminary is that it gives you lots of space to ask big questions. So you can have deep conversations about things like, is there free will? And what do we really know about God? And why is there suffering in our world? And those reflections are great preparation for a lot of different kinds of ministry. But do you know where that education is not particularly helpful? Parenting toddlers. I've got two of them. And when my son is running around the house without any pants on, because the idea of not jumping on the furniture so that he can get dressed for the day is like offensive to him, all my reflecting on the meaning of the incarnation is not that helpful. And when my daughter has decided that the end of bath time is the worst thing that has ever happened to her or anyone else, and she's communicating her displeasure accordingly, she doesn't care if I understand systematic theology. Just doesn't matter to her. And you know what? They kind of have a point. Because being a toddler is hard. There's teething and learning to walk and learning to use the potty, which is fun for everyone. And they're kind of told what to do all day long. It's kind of rough. And sometimes it isn't always obvious in those little moments of toddler anguish how the things that we've been taught about God really matter. And you know what? I don't think it really gets easier when we get older, does it? The hard stuff gets a lot harder and it gets a lot more permanent. We see sickness and injustice and cruelty and all of this other stuff that sometimes just makes you wonder, where does God fit? What does the gospel mean? Is it comfort to have the good news of Jesus in the context of a world in which we're surrounded by ugliness and death and pain? Is the good news of Jesus really enough in that reality? I think a lot of us would say, yeah, yeah, it is. But there are moments in which sometimes it's just difficult to recognize exactly how that's true. I think that's particularly present for those of us who are taught a version of the gospel that's essentially limited to the afterlife. We talked about this a little bit at the brunch a couple weeks ago. If our primary understanding of the gospel is that Jesus saved us from hell and gave us life in heaven, well, that provides some comfort, right? But there are going to be moments in which it simply just is not enough. It won't feel like enough because sometimes what we need isn't just the promise that good things are coming. 
We need more than just a promise that suffering will one day come to an end. What we need is for the reality of God to make a difference now. We need to know that an encounter with the true and living God isn't going to just change the afterlife. It needs to change the way that we experience life in the present. We're still really choppy, huh? Sure. I talk with my hands, so if I do this, tell me so that you can hear me. So one of the gifts of God's word to us today, I think, is that in Paul's letter to the Romans, we're told that it's not just a promise of good things to come. It's a promise that the quality of our lives will change now. Now, that's not to say that we won't experience pain or loss or sorrow or even the immediate consequences of death. I don't think we can make that argument from Scripture. But what we can hold on to is the promise that how we experience life, the way that we encounter and understand and walk through the pain of our world will be qualitatively different because of the things that are offered to us through Jesus Christ. The message that we looked at today in Romans 8 can kind of be summed up with a little bit of a paradox. It goes like this. In the absence of the Spirit, we will experience death even in life. With the Spirit, we will experience life even in death. In other words, if we lack the indwelling spirit of God, if our being is built upon something else, then no matter how much we try to experience life and peace and wholeness, we'll never escape the impact of sin and death. Even our most alive moments will have within them a taste of death. And conversely, if we live out of the Spirit, if our identity is built upon Christ's Spirit within us, then even in our darkest moments, when we're surrounded by death and mortality, we'll experience life. Now, before we fill out these ideas more fully, I think it's helpful to make sure we understand those words that we're using here. So, remember that we're in a series where we're looking at what it means to be whole in spirit, soul, and body. And the idea that we've been building on is that the spirit is kind of the center. Um, You'll see we've got up here the diagram that you've seen before. So the spirit is the center, and that's supposed to be the indwelling spirit of God. That should be the foundation upon which we build our identity and the reality that we live out in our soul and in our body. But the Bible tells us that that spirit has been corrupted by sin. So instead of living out of this whole and God-given spirit, we've got kind of a, a broken and corrupt center. And the result is that every other part of our being is also corrupted. And our focus today is on how that plays out in our bodies. But it's important to note that by bodies, we don't just mean our physical bodies. When Paul talks about bodies, he's thinking about it as a Hebrew. And for a Hebrew person, the body is uh, sort of the part of our being through which we experience our environment. And that includes both our material environment, but also our social environment. So we're talking about our physical bodies, yes, but also our relationships. 
our emotion, our language, even our demeanor. The body is the sum total of how we interact with the world and the things and the people who embody it. And Paul tells us that this body is dead because of sin. Now, there's a sense in which that idea dead can just mean mortal. There's lots of places in scripture where we have that idea. And I think there's an element of that here. But I also think that there's a little bit more to Paul's understanding. So if we look at, for example, verses 6 through 8 of this passage, he says this, For to set the mind on the spirit, or for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, and indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Those statements are in the present tense. He's talking about now. This isn't just about what happens when our life on earth comes to an end. This is about the quality of our lives now. And here's what he's saying. The thing upon which your identity is built, if that thing is not of God, if that identity is some corrupted, broken version of yourself apart from God, that thing will inherently lead to a life that is shaped by death. Life and peace will elude you because no matter how hard you work to achieve them, your center is hostile to God. It has turned away from God. And so everything you do, everything you experience, every relationship, every physical or social triumph will always have within it a bit of death. Here's an illustration Uh, Some of you might know that I was a competitive swimmer in college. And while I was swimming, one of the big names in the world was Michael Phelps. Does anybody remember watching him win eight gold medals at the 2008 Olympics, right? It was extraordinary. Most amazing thing I've ever seen. Uh, No one has ever broken that record. Eight gold medals from a single athlete in any sport at games. He was so dominant that when he was swimming, the commentators would, like, figure out who was going to get second. Like, they didn't even question that he was going to win the race. And he eventually went on to win 28 Olympic medals, and he set 39 world records. And yet, he recently shared that after every Olympics in 2004, 2008, and 2012, he fell into a deep depression and self-medicated with drugs and alcohol. This is someone who achieved, in a sense, the fullest of what the human body is capable of achieving. And yet he said after the 2012 Olympics, he was so crushed that he locked himself in his room for days at a time, and he didn't eat, and he didn't sleep, and in his words, he didn't even want to be alive anymore. Now, fortunately, he eventually figured out what was going on, and he got help for his depression, and he began to work his way back toward a place of mental well-being. But the point of the illustration is this. We live in a world that is corrupted by death. Everything on earth is broken and dying. Our bodies and our souls apart from Christ, are broken and dying. And therefore, even the most profound, most amazing human achievement, if it is experienced in a body that is absent of a redeemed and whole spirit, will be tainted by death and decay. 
If our center, if our spirit is not whole, then even our most alive moments will have the taste of death in them. And I don't think we really need an extreme example like Michael Phelps to recognize this reality. We can see it in our day-to-day lives and the ways that we look for life and peace apart from God, or as Paul says, in the flesh, and we end up feeling empty. And in the flesh here doesn't just mean like carnal living or self-gratification. Paul's talking about all of the ways that we seek life and try to redeem ourselves apart from God. Tim Keller says that setting our minds on the flesh is putting our hopes in something besides God as our functional savior. And we find all sorts of functional saviors for ourselves. All sorts of ways of proving our worth or trying to build our identity on something besides God. For Michael Phelps, it it might have been athletic success, but I think for a lot of us it's something more subtle. Maybe it's being a good parent or uh, an ethical business person. Or we might try to build our identity around our image, either our physical body or our clothes or the way we present ourselves. In that sense, I think for a lot of us, that functional savior is really just the approval of others. Or for Christians, I think there's a particular danger of building our functional savior around being good Christians and following all of our Christian rules. So we go to church on Sunday, and we tithe, and we champion the right causes, and vote for the right political party, because those are the things that we've been taught that Christians should do. And yet, if our inner reality has not changed, that rule-following is just another functional savior, right? Because we're still trying to justify ourselves apart from the redemptive work of God's Spirit within us. Uh, William Temple, who was a leader in the Anglican Church in the mid-20th century, said, Your religion is what you do with your solitude. So ask yourself, what do you do when you're alone? What takes up your energy? What preoccupies you? Where does your mind go when there's nothing else to distract you? In the middle of the night when you can't sleep, what is it that keeps you up? These are the things that Paul calls the flesh. That's the thing that's trying to take the place of God's spirit at the center of your being. And Paul tells us, no matter how hard you cling to that thing, it cannot and it will not bring you life. Because whatever it is, if it replaces the spirit of God as the center of your being, it will be inherently hostile to God. It cannot please him, it cannot redeem you, and it will lead to death. Which brings us to the good news. Paul tells us that even our best life will be corrupted if it is in the flesh. But he also says that for those in the spirit, even our worst moments will have within them life and peace. It isn't a promise, like we said before, that you won't experience pain or loss or grief. And I want to be clear that I'm not saying, and I don't think the text is saying that people in the spirit won't experience physical or mental illness. I think for some faithful Christians, that is a reality of living in a broken world. But somehow Paul says, even in pain and loss and grief and illness, to set the mind on the spirit is life. 
Somehow the life given to us in the spirit is stronger than the death and the brokenness that is all around us. I want to try to give you an example of this also. Uh, When Eric and I lived in Santa Barbara, there was an older couple, Bill and Darlene. And they moved into a retirement community near our church and started attending our church. And for two decades, Bill and Darlene had served as medical missionaries in Congo. They raised their family on the mission field, just really faithful saints. And after they returned later, or after they returned to the state, sometime later, uh, Darlene got really sick. Some sort of virus, and she uh, eventually lost the ability to walk, to talk, even to eat. Now, all of this happened before I met her. So I never heard her speak. I never know, got to know what she was like before her illness. But here's what I remember about Darlene to this day. Her smile. Every Sunday morning, Bill would open the side doors to the sanctuary, and he'd bring in a reclining chair so that Darlene could sit and enjoy the service. And every time they arrived, people would just swarm around Darlene to say good morning. And she would smile at them as if she'd known and loved them their whole lives. People just wanted to be around her because you could just feel her pleasure the way that she smiled at you. Without speaking or walking or even being able to control her limbs, this amazing woman somehow learned to love and welcome the people around her with such force that people were just drawn to her. I talked to Bill about this once and and commented on her smile, and and he said, you know, I think she's learned that her smile is her ministry. And it absolutely was. It was ministry. Not very long after they joined our church, Darlene died. And uh, at her memorial service, which you could imagine was pretty well attended, uh, her family played a video. And it's a video that was taken at their retirement community at a Valentine's Day dance. And you can see a bunch of couples dancing on the dance floor. And then you watch as people sort of stop what they're doing and turn towards the center of the room. And there in the middle of the dance floor, Bill is holding Darlene's hands as he dances with her in a wheelchair. And he spins her around and around and he gets down low and looks in her eyes and she smiles. That beautiful, captivating smile. And you can see the room around them quiet. As people just stand in awe of the life and the joy and the love that is radiating out of these two saints. And that, I think, is the life to which Paul refers. That's the kind of life that can't be diminished even by the slow dying of a mortal body. That's life in the spirit. Life even in death because Paul says... The spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, that's what dwells in us. And it offers us a qualitatively different kind of life now. Yes, by all means, it is a promise of eternal life, of good news for what's to come. But also, and incredibly, it's life now. So the obvious question that follows is, how do we get there? How do we experience that kind of life? The first verse that Travis read today, I think, gives us a hint. 
Because Paul says there's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. And that statement is the basis of everything else that follows. And it's the answer to the big question that Paul has been raising in the first seven chapters of this letter to the Romans. He's talking about that corrupt sinner that we mentioned, that brokenness inside of us, that deep-rooted impulse to rebel against the good that God desires for us. It's a darkness that we're at a loss to deal with on our own. We can't try harder or come up with more rules and somehow make it go away. We're kind of stuck in this brokenness, and yet we have this promise that in Christ there is no condemnation. So somehow, because of Christ, God can look at that mess and understand that darkness more than you and I can even understand it. And he can say, you are not condemned. Even if that's what you might have felt like you deserved, you are not condemned. You are accepted and loved. And that declaration invites us into a new reality, which comes with the promise that God's spirit will dwell inside of us. Transforming every aspect of our being so what was previously corrupted can now radiate life. And our bodies, both our physical bodies and our relational bodies, are no longer subject to the death that once ruled over them. And then Paul says, to live according to the Spirit is to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. And that word, set our minds on, has a connotation of uh, being preoccupied with or, or fixated upon. And so here's what Paul's saying. The things of the Spirit should be where our mind goes in our moments of solitude. When you're up in the middle of the night and you can't sleep, during the day when you finally have a moment to reflect, Paul wants us to steer our minds towards the things of the the Spirit. So what are those things? Well, here's a few of them just from this chapter. In verse 2, he tells us that the Spirit sets us free. In verse 14, he tells us that those who are led by the Spirit are sons and daughters of God. In verse 15, we're told that we have the spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father, or Daddy. Verse 16 tells us that the Spirit bears witness that we're children of God. And verse 17 tells us that we're fellow heirs with Christ. In other words, the things of the Spirit are the promises that we belong to God. The things of the Spirit are the declarations that we are free from condemnation, loved and welcomed and accepted by God. So that qualitatively different life is available as we learn to a greater and greater degree to hear the words that the Spirit is declaring to us, our status before God, our acceptance. Now that Spirit is already within us. That's a promise that we have as followers of Christ. The Spirit dwells in us, but living according to that Spirit means allowing us to hear that truth all day long. The Spirit is there within you saying, you are a child of God. You are not condemned. You are valuable and loved and redeemed and set free. Tim Keller says it like this. He says, we are to be preoccupied with our standing in Christ. We're to drill into our minds and hearts his love and adoption of us. To mind the things of the Spirit means never to forget our privileged standing or the fact that we are loved. And to let this dominate our thinking, our perspectives, and therefore our words and actions. 
Can you imagine how your relationships, your emotions, the way you understand your you and use your body, how all of things these things might change if they flowed out of a deep understanding of your acceptance in Christ? I never heard her speak, but I think that's what was behind Darlene's smile. She knew who she was, and she knew to whom she belonged. And all day long, the Spirit of Christ inside of her whispered, I love you, Darlene. You are my daughter. You are beautiful. You belong. I gave my life for you. And that knowledge transformed her body so that even in illness, it radiated life. Because if that promise of God's love is at our center, it will bend every aspect of our being toward life and peace, no matter what else we experience. A few weeks ago, uh, Bethany, senior pastor, in his video sermon, was talking about how it is that we have the Spirit of God within us, and yet we continue to sin. And he shared the story about a professor who said that every time we sin, we forget who we are. If that's true, the antidote is surely to listen when the Spirit declares who and whose we are. That's where that transformation begins. That's how we experience the gospel, not just as a promise of things to come, but as a reality that qualitatively changes the world as we experience it now. Without the Spirit, even our fullest life will taste like death. But within us, dwells the promise of life, even in death. May God grant us the grace to live into that reality. Will you join me in prayer? God, we belong to you. We didn't do it, we didn't earn it, and yet we belong to you and you dwell inside of us. God, we pray that you would turn our hearts to hear and to listen and to believe the truths of who we are because of you. We pray for your grace that we would be people who live according to your promises, who believe that we are loved and accepted and not condemned. God, thank you for the gift of life. Thank you for the spirit. May we live according to that gift. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Friends, as the worship team uh, takes their places, uh, we need to kind of move from one moment of learning and growing to this next moment where we can have an opportunity to reflect. And as Denise mentioned, receiving life in the Spirit is not super complicated. It is our ability to hear and receive in our hearts these promises. Again, that they're on this handout that you got, the identity truths piece. I invite you to pull that out if you'd like to, and I'll read just a few more of these for us. You don't have to read along, you can just listen. But as it is so precious and valuable to actually take a minute, take a beat, and just catch our breath, uh, we want to afford that time now. So if you'd like to sit with open hands, if you would like to Take some space in the back and maybe kneel and just hear these words from the Savior. You are welcome to do that. But hear these words in your heart, and may they bring a a greater experience of life in the Spirit to our whole community. Hear these words.
from 1 John chapter 3. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. From the second letter to the Corinthians, Paul writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And from the chapter that Denise just taught on, Romans chapter 8, it says this, Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Jesus, this must be true. You wouldn't have put it in the scriptures if it wasn't true. But as Denise just taught us, it's really hard to remember that. It's really hard to remember our adoption. It's really hard to live as if we believe this. It's so much easier for us to slip back into our patterns and our, our old ways of doing things in the flesh trying to earn our favor with you or to curry favor with others. And so, God, in those places in each of our hearts where we have continued to live, tried to live, apart from your Spirit, would you convict us? Would you change us through your Spirit? Not through a fountain of guilt, but through a river of your grace. Lord, there may be places in our hearts where we're really feeling convicted, where we um, could really benefit from having someone pray with us. Give us the courage in a moment to seek prayer. Or give us courage this week to talk to somebody about these broken places and invite others in to be your hands, to be your voice as we seek healing. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Friends, we're going to stand in just a moment and continue and win in just a moment and continue and win in just a moment and continue and win.